Hi. Good to see you. Glad that you're here this weekend. Uh, on the way into all the services, you're handed the notes. And if you want to grab those in just a second, we'll jump into the message. Uh, while you're doing that, I've got two quick things that I um, want, to, want to bring to you. First one is that our men's conference comes up uh, relatively quickly here. We're doing signups right now. And uh, there is uh, still an opportunity uh, to get signed up for that. And they're actually offering um, a bit of an incentive if you do that before uh, August the 1st, which will be this coming week. Uh, if you register, pay. In order to register, you have to pay. But if you register and pay, then you're entered automatically uh, to, uh, to a drawing that gives away a free registration for uh, the conference. And you could uh, use that any way you want to uh, as a refund for your own uh, reimbursement if you want to do that, or if you want to give it to somebody else as a gift, you want to invite somebody else to go along. And always when we do things like this, uh, our statement is we don't uh, let money stand in the way of ministry. And um, while I'm not sure that that is always a necessity to say, I just want to make sure that anyone in here, uh, anyone at our campuses, anyone that would hear this in any way, shape, or form, if you desire to go and simply cannot afford to do so, um, just let us know. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make uh, whatever uh, arrangement is necessary to, uh, to provide the opportunity, or if you know somebody that uh, you feel is deserving of that and simply can't go, um, let us know. We, we, our desire would be to minister to that person. And maybe then I would throw this out too. Perhaps if you're here and you hear that and you're like, you know, I, I could help with that. You'd like to, to do a scholarship for somebody. Let us know on that also. How would you sign up? Our website is jfc.org. When you pull up the front page, there are a number of banners that go across the page and on there would be uh, the men's conference and you would just simply click that. Or, uh, as I said uh, last weekend, uh, Dan DeMay, um, he's, he's our associate and uh, sort of runs the day-to-day -day operation. Dan has made his email available if you have any questions, dan, D-A-N, at jfc.org. And as I said, Dan is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week for anything that you would like to <laughs> talk to him about. Okay, um, and then, then last but not least, I've got a really exciting announcement on, uh, on behalf of, uh, of my family. Uh, my, my son, Daniel, one of my twins, uh, got engaged. And uh, yeah, yeah, so he is... Uh, he, he uh, let me, let me, I'm a little bit uh, under, under uh, uh, the gun as far as uh, putting together our video, but uh, I'll say this all at our campuses here. This, my family has grown up, you know, we started the church uh, 16 years ago. My family's grown up literally in front of so many of your eyes, and, and it's an exciting time for us. Uh, Daniel met Holly. Uh, they went to YWAM together, and here's, here's, listen to this really quick God story. Holly's family, last name's Van Duren, they used to go to our church several years ago, and after she graduated from high school, her family moved. Moved, uh, to Texas. We forgive them for that, but they, they did move to, to Texas. We actually did not know them when they lived here. We had never met them. We had never talked to them. Uh, were never introduced to them and did not know this family. So they literally had attended our church and then moved, and we had not met them. Daniel uh, graduates high school, spends a year uh, going to school, and uh, uh, feels like the Lord puts upon his heart to go to youth with a mission. So uh, now imagine uh, an entire school year plus has gone by picks where he's going to go and do his DTS at. And uh, this young lady who used to attend our church but now lives in Texas and has been gone uh, for a couple of years, 
also picks this DTS out of all the ones in the world to go to. They meet each other, find out that they used to go to church uh, together. One of the rules in YWAM, though, is that you can't date during that time. You're, you're supposed to be in a discipleship process. So Daniel would write us when he was in Israel every day, I can't wait for this to be over so I can date this girl. Um, we, we, uh, yeah, yeah. So um, one thing led to another, and, and uh, after, after their DTS and their, their outreach was over, Holly ended up moving back here, and subsequently her family has ended up moving back here. But they, they recently got engaged, and we're just so excited about that and, uh, and happy for him. And what a pleasure it is to be able to announce something like that uh, to our church. So um, more, more to come. Our first boy, that now we've given away both of our girls, now our boy, uh, one of them. Uh, got two more available. Let us know if you have any. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> you think I'd be in trouble with that? And they both will be like, thank you, Dad. Thank you so much for help. Okay. Uh, grab your notes if you will. Let me welcome in all of our campuses, not just Lone Tree, Highlands Ranch, Castle Rock, Lakewood, the folks that live stream us, uh, and of course the folks that will be listening later on. Uh, however, you're a part of the greater JFC family. We really appreciate that, and I want to welcome you. The uh, name or the title of our series is You Asked For It. The premise just simply is this, if you haven't been here. For our summer series, we asked you. Uh, why don't you email us or uh, 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 let us know what you would like uh, us to address. Maybe there's just some subject that we haven't handled. It hasn't come up in the normal course of doing a series. Or maybe something that just simply is in uh, our culture at large today and you'd like us to address it. So this series literally has come from your questions and from you uh, writing us in. Well over 100 different responses to that between all of our campuses. But uh, unlikely enough, or maybe likely, I don't know how you would say that, uh, there may be an, a, you know, a, a number of different uh, people that ask questions, but really there's only a handful of the same question. I think that's probably reflective of the fact that we're all living in the same region, we're all dealing with the same thing uh, in our culture today and, and in the world at large. Uh, some of it simply was, uh, you know, what's the church's view on this, or what, what, uh, what's our view on this, or, you know, pastor, how do you see this, or how do we deal this, or, you know, where, where are we at? And so that's sort of what uh, we've been handling in this uh, series. Um, today, I'm dealing with cultural sexuality. Cultural sexuality. It's a difficult uh, subject, not, not to simply have to sit up here. I've done this for a long time. Speaking is not the issue. The older that I get, though, the more aware I am that I never want to speak on my behalf, but I have a responsibility to speak on behalf of God and do it the right way. And that weighs heavily on my heart. I want you to know that. I don't take that lightly. I don't take that uh, for granted. Uh, it's not casual, and I never mean that flippant when I, when I sit up here. I realize that I carry a great responsibility and that my words carry great weight when I, when I sit up here. And it is with great fear and trembling, literally, that I get before God when I know that I have to uh, deal with subjects that aren't always easy to deal with. And I ask him, I, I don't want to just simply give my opinion on this, but let me communicate your heart, please. Please let me do this like Jesus would do it. I spent literally all afternoon in my backyard asking Jesus, give me your heart for, so that I do it the right way. I don't know why that's emotional to me other than the fact that it's just it weighs heavily on me to do it his way. And I realize my responsibility in that. I did put as a warning in my message when I wrote this, it's something that I tend to believe more and more, and especially with the day and the age that we live in, and I'll explain it very quickly, but I wrote it this way. I believe that this is one of these messages that can either soften or harden your heart towards the gospel. I'm going to say that one more time. This is a message that can either soften or harden your heart towards the gospel. I believe that truly when you teach the Bible... One of those two things happens in a person's heart. Any teaching that is, that is directly from God's heart, I don't think ever leaves a hearer ambivalent about what they've heard. Yeah. 
Do you, do you agree with that statement right there? If it truly has come from God, it either draws a person to them or it repels a person from them. Now, we live in a day, it's a, it's a funny day. So many churches today are trying to create an attractional uh, ministry whereby they think that everything about the gospel is simply attractional. If we can just figure out how to say it right, it's attractional to people. And I think that anyone in here that recognizes that when Jesus taught, it was not always attractional, was it? That there were times, you can look at John chapter 6, there were times where it actually calls people disciples. That when Jesus said difficult things to them, they turned and walked away from him. And he lost the majority of his following in one afternoon. One afternoon. And we have churches today who think that they're smarter than Christ. That if they can put together an attractional model and just simply say it the right way or avoid dealing with certain things, we can attract everybody. But at what point do you then take away the very cleansing agent that causes a life to be changed? and radically brought to salvation. So it's with that, that interpretation that I then come before you right now and I say to you, I, I, I simply am not wanting to express opinion, but I wanna take a biblical look at it. Now here's what I did when I put this message together. Let me, let me see if I can explain this. Um, there's looking at something on the ground, being very close to it, and then there's backing up and looking at it from the air. And I think that both of those uh, ways to teach or to look at life are both very valuable. Both, both you can gain a lot of wisdom from, but sometimes when you uh, do something from the ground, you're so close to it that you're only addressing an issue and maybe not the entire breadth of what was Christ trying to say to the world at large or to the church or to an individual when he said it. So my approach to this has sort of been to come at it from the air in the bigger breadth of how to look at this issue right here. So I put in there 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. You see it behind me. Uh, it just simply is that statement that we are an aroma of life to some and an aroma of death to other. The aroma is from God, and we can't change what that flavor is. But how people receive it is really where the heart is over the issue, and that's why it can either soften or harden a person. So as we approach this subject right here, Let's, uh, let's just ask the Lord then to open our hearts and to make plain what he would say. So, Father, ask for you to take this opportunity to do what you want to do, to make your word very real. God, as we try to look at this at an overarching uh, understanding of sexuality, God, would you just please uh, help us not to see it simply from the ground or from one particular slice, but to step back and to look at what's God trying to say about this and why is he saying it? If everything that he does is good, and if everything that he does is right, then really we've got to line up underneath that and ask, what is God trying to say to me, and what is he doing? And I just pray, God, that you would make that plain and clear right now, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I just throw out this idea. As we begin, where do you get your truth from? It's either from the culture at large, or you've got something that's larger and eternal. But somewhere in your life, you're drawing truth from and it may be the way that you were raised. It may be what you read or what you hear. It may be what you hear from church. But somewhere you're getting truth. And I just want to ask you, where are you getting your truth from? Is it something very temporal that has to do with the climate of how people feel over a particular time? Or does it have a longer, more eternal directness when it comes to truth? Where I'm trying to come at is simply not from my opinion about this or the people that I hang out with or what I've heard someone else say. I'm trying to look at it from God stepping back, speaking to an entire world. I used, at the transition point, the title Cultural Sexuality, and stepping back from that, 
here's how I want to try to teach this message. I want to look at God's original intention for sex. We find that in the book of Genesis. In chapter 2, God's very specific on the idea of the creation of man, the creation of woman, and sex. He begins telling the story in Genesis 2. He talks about creation. Uh, Last week when I taught about the earth, I simply asked the question, uh, what was God's final word about creation? And God said that his creation is what? It's good. And if he calls it good, then we have a responsibility to treat it well. Moving on from that, a little further down, it talks about the creation of the man, God putting the man in the garden. And, then, and this, is really, this is interesting. And, and I don't know exactly how to reconcile this. I just think it's really interesting. God knows everything. God puts everything together with wisdom. And yet it's after the creation of man that God then recognizes it's not good for the man to be alone. And I don't always understand, why, if he knew, why didn't he just create the woman at the same? But there had to be something there. Maybe the man needed to know. It's not good for you to be alone. I, I'm not, I, do whatever you want to with that one. That's, there, there's, yeah, there's no theology, there's just the thought. But he creates the man, puts him in the garden, uh, and then he realizes, makes the statement, it's not good for the man to be alone. So the Bible teaches that he caused the man to go into a deep sleep. He did not create the woman the way that he created the man. He takes from what he had already created from the side of the man. And I've heard it said that it's an interesting place that he takes the woman from because he didn't take it from Adam's feet that Adam would step on her or rule over her or from his head that she would be above him but from his side that they really are partners in life and she's called a helpmeet. I love that analogy right there. But it teaches very clearly that uh, God formed the woman and gave the woman. This is interesting. Adam didn't go and find Eve. God brought the woman to the man. And what I like about that statement right there, just looking at anatomy, isn't it interesting to see how, and and pardon, step back and look at it, isn't it interesting to see how God designed a woman to fit a man and for a man to fit a woman? I think that when you just look at the overarching understanding of creation, you can see God's bigger plan towards things like that if you step back from it and just look. So he creates the man. It's not good for the man to be alone. He then forms the woman. He brings the woman to the man. Their parts perfectly formed together to create a whole. God even says that the two of you now will become one flesh, and it's a double entendre. A double entendre. Pastor, why are you using a 50-cent word and a 25-cent message? Here's why. Double entendre is the very idea of having dual meaning, and one of them usually is sexual. So here we have God saying that the two will become one flesh, later they become one, but the greater understanding is that the way that they become one is through sex. So literally he brings the two together, formed for each other, perfectly put together, and then says, I give you this gift, here's how you become one. It's not through the act of living together, hanging out together, do this. And you begin to become one. So pastor, how do you know that that's true? All right, in the book of Corinthians, later on when Paul is talking to the church and he tells a man, don't join yourself to a prostitute because you become one flesh with her. When you do this, without a question, it's a double entendre here. While the man is being told and the woman become one flesh, the way, the meaning is have sex because it will help you become one flesh. And literally, God's good gift and the way that we're to receive the gift of sex is with great thankfulness. Like everything that God created in this world, yes or no? All right, so, but put this together. If it's a great gift, then let's share it with everybody. No. 
No. And that argument is so out there today. It's a gift. Let me give it to everybody. No. So let me bring this down to a greater understanding of a gift. Uh, I wear two rings. Two rings. Here's the first one. Uh, it, it's, it's got some insignias on it. I actually designed this ring. There's a jeweler in our church, Williams Jeweler. Stephen Diane Williams, good friends of mine. Went to them with a, a vision of something that I wanted, and the guy's an artist, and he helped me put this ring together, and we took a lot of different molds, and they've got a 3D printer and wax, and you could look at it before they cast it. I finally got it down, and there's so many things on this that represent something. And then I had it made for a group of eight other men, men that I've committed myself to, men that I have, I have, I have, I have given myself to as a friend and, and, and as, a, as another pastor. I've committed myself to longevity with them and said to them, no matter what happens, this, this goes beyond the ministry that we do together. You can always appeal to me with this ring. We call it the ring. You wear the ring. If you wear the ring, there's a certain place in my life that you have. If you wear the ring, hold it up real quick. Let me show you something. There's just only a few men in the whole world that wear this ring. And these guys have a relationship with me. It's a gift that I've given to them. I've given it to eight of them. But then there's another ring that I wear. This is a ring that only one other person in my life wears. And while this ring means the world to me, and I've shared this with other people, I've never shared my innermost self with these people. Only one person gets this gift. And it's the person that I gave my life to in that way. And she wears a ring that only belongs to her. Now, here's what's funny. Chris and I don't go around asking people, you want to try on my ring? <laughs> it's sacred to us. And it is special to us. And it belongs to just the two of us. It is a gift that only one other person shares. It's a wonderful gift, but it doesn't belong to everybody else. It belongs to one person. That's what makes it special. If you take what's special and give it to everybody, it's no longer special by definition, yes or no? Yep. Do you agree? Yep. So it just begins to limit then how this gift is to be used and what God said about it and how God gave it to us. I put in your notes, so it's not good for the man to be alone. He designed the woman for the man and the man for the woman. They're to clean together and become one flesh, and he's specifically talking about sex. And then the gift of sex is to be received with great thanksgiving. The purpose for sex, it is procreation without any identity. I mean, let's not, let's don't kid ourselves about that issue. God tells the man and the woman, be fruitful and multiply. Our earth would be extinct if men and women decided not to procreate. Let me try over here on this side real quickly. So maybe there's a deeper lesson here about what sex does. But it doesn't look like most of you have any trouble because I just came from downstairs and the children's church is quite full. The nurseries are overflowing. You understand that if, if we decided tomorrow that this could be applied in any other way, the earth would be a stink just by definition. You agree with that? It's just, it's, just, it's just a biological truth. There's, I'm, not, I'm not messing up. I'm not, I'm not trying to overstate. It's just simply a biological truth. It's the way that God designed it. It's the way that nature works. And it simply, it could not sustain itself any other way. But ultimately, beyond even the procreation of it, listen to this, is that God himself created the feelings, the, the wonderful, the, this is awesome. God created that. That's not a biological accident. 
That's not just like a, a byproduct. God knew when he designed it, it would feel this way. And that then we receive with great thanksgiving. Thank you, God. It's like, I, I'm embarrassed. Then never watch TV at 8 o'clock in your house again. If you're going to hold me to that standard, do it all the way through your life. Because anything that I said doesn't come close to what's said on TV at 8 o'clock. God put the feelings with it. He, it is a good gift to be received by God. But like all good gifts that God gives, the enemy immediately wants to deceive with a gift, interrupt a gift, counterfeit a gift, and stop a gift. All right, so then we move into God's original design for sex, and then we move into the fall of man. Remember, I'm taking a step. I'm not looking at an issue up close, but let's look back for God's original overarching idea. Genesis chapter 3 moves into the fall of man. The man and the woman were naked, the Bible says, and they knew it not. Now, it doesn't mean that they didn't know they were naked. They weren't stupid. They knew they had equipment, okay? Here's, how would you say it if you're sitting up here right now? So be very careful before you judge me. If you do, I pray to God that you have to do the same thing that I'm, here's, so they were naked, but the Bible says they knew it not. Here's, here's what this means. They simply were completely comfortable in how God made them. With the fall of man, here's the issue right here. The enemy comes to man, and this is what he tells the woman first. He offers her the fruit. The fruit's not an apple, it's a fruit. It's the knowledge of good and evil. God says the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The enemy doesn't call God a liar. He just simply does what he always does. He talks just long enough for us to question whether or not God actually meant what he said. So the devil offers to her his rendition of the truth, which is, God knows you'll be like him. He's not trying to keep you from harm. He's trying to keep you from being like him. And the truth of the matter is, none of us can handle what God can handle because we're not God. And the woman buys the lie, tells her husband, their eyes are opened. Again, it's a metaphor. And immediately, listen, the first thing that happens between the man and the woman is sexual dysfunction. Sexual dysfunction. How do you know? Because the first thing that takes place between the two of them, their eyes are open, they realized that they're naked. This is how it's been. We don't even know how long they've been in this condition. They were not oblivious to the fact. They were obviously attracted to each other. But their response now is to cover themselves with fig leaves. Remember? There's a dysfunction or an uncomfortableness or suddenly something between them sexually gets messed up at the fall of man. Yes or no? Yes. Think about it. And then you find from that point on the man and the woman bringing all sorts of accusations against each other, all sorts of trouble with each other. And then you find God making this statement to the Trinity. Man has taken and eaten, I paraphrase, man has taken and eaten of the fruit. They're going to be stuck in this condition forever if they eat of the tree of life. We've got no choice but to cause them to leave the garden so they don't get stuck like this. And then God has to kill animals 
to cover them as he pushes them out of the garden. Do you remember the story? I'm just gonna make the statement, I put it in your notes this way. When you go through the book of Genesis, it's interesting. They saw they were naked, they felt ashamed, so they covered themselves, and at that point, God has to make the first killing. And it's a metaphor again that shows us God's willingness to cover over our nakedness. But listen, it's also a double entendre again because their nakedness represents the sexual union between them that for now on, on a fallen earth, comes with a lot of trouble with it. What was easy and pure, what was natural and normal, has now come with all sorts of questions, hang-ups, and problems because of a curse that's on the earth. Now, interesting, you might sit there and you go, okay, I've read that, you know, I, I can't believe that God would curse them. God actually doesn't curse them. Go back and read it. God says, because of your decision, the earth is cursed. The very thing that God was trying to keep them from is the very thing that they did. They assumed control of their lives. We know what we want. We know what we can do. And from that, in Adam and Eve, listen, you may sit there and go, gosh, if they'd have only made it, I'd have made a different decision if I was them. Them is us and us is them. And the issue of now that there is brokenness in all of humanity, listen to me, people who are messed up or have trouble sexually are not the only people in the world who are broken. Everyone who is born from that point on is forever broken. And all of us find ourselves in the same boat of needing a savior to fix what is broken. So listen to this, the way we see most of life is through very broken eyes without being able to see it through God's original intention and with God speaking clearly. This is why I wanted it this way. What we see is you're mean. You're keeping me from having fun and you don't understand how important this is to me. And he understood the whole time how important it was because he created it. But we, not them, we assume control of our I know best for me. I know what I need, and I know what I want and what I like. And we still shake that little fist, little finite fist in the face of the infinite. I know what restraint he must have. (laughs) Think about that. What restraint God must have. If I could convince you, maybe you've looked at the book of Genesis and never thought about what I said before, but if I could convince you, it's just possible that from a further back view, an overarching look at sexuality, God created it to be this way, it was really well running, and then man with his own decision messed up not just the earth, but messed up his life, and that includes his sexuality. If I could get you to agree that, yeah, that's, that's possible. So what's the fix? Right, so then let's move quickly into a New Testament passage that I think sort of sums up Genesis 1 and 2 and where the world is at. And this is not something that was written just 2,000 years ago for that day and time. It's a truth. This is why I asked you where you get your truth from because truth is truth regardless of the generation you live in. It doesn't change. Culture changes. Morals go up and down. Truth stays the same. 
So when it's written 2,000 years ago, if it's true, it still has an effect today. And if it's a lie 2,000 years ago, it's still a lie today. Lies don't turn into truths, and truths don't turn into lies. Write that down. That's a keeper. So the result of man exchanging the truth of God for a lie, one of the places, all of the New Testament, all of the Bible, speaks to that issue. Whenever you read about the law, why is, I don't even understand, why, why the Ten Commandments, why the law? It's all to prove that we are broken and unable to live at the level that God created the earth at. And that we need a Savior. None of us can keep the law. We're broken. We need a Savior. All the Bible points to that, but Romans chapter 1 then, in particular, begins to deal with the particulars of when a person... The result of man exchanging the truth of God for a lie. What happens? All right, one of the things we'll read about, and again, I've got to take an entire chapter and condense it down very quickly. I would love for you to go home, read this, and if you have questions, email dan at jfc.org. <laughs> Actually, all of our email is our first name. It's very simple to remember. It's our first name, at jfc.org, so that I, without any question whatsoever, that if you have questions or you struggle or you're like, John, I just don't, this is not shut up, this is, let's reason together. Let's look at what the word has to say about this. All right, so Romans chapter one then begins to deal with this issue. Verse 25. Man worships creation over the creator. It just simply says, he exchanged the truth of God for a lie and began to worship what was created rather than the creator. So here, here, this just sums up what happens when man exchanges the truth of God for a lie, which is what happened at the fall of man. He exchanged the truth of God for the lie of the enemy. Here we just have Paul just bringing it to understanding. So the first thing that happens, man exchanges the truth of God for a lie, and he begins to worship the creation. We worship ourselves more than we worship the creator. Once that happens, it then sets up this. Man then exchanges God's purposes for sex for his own lust. It clearly states it. Look at, look at verse 26. Uh, I, I guess it's, I don't have it in there uh, in, in a way, but let me, I'll read it to you in a, in a way that, that, uh, that makes sense here. Um, Hang on just a second. So it's Romans 1 and verse 26. He exchanges the truth of God for a lie. In verse 26, it just simply says this, because of this, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even the women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones, 27. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. So we clearly have in 25, man exchanges the truth of God for a lie. He begins to worship himself more than he worships God. When we do that, we exalt what we want, which is lust, over what God wants, which is truth which is love, which is righteousness. And then it begins to go down into a complete slide through history. 28, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to depraved minds, to do what ought not to be done. 
They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, grid, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of, now listen to all of the things that Paul lists. Mankind has become full of envy, murders, strife, deceit, hatred, or malice. They become gossips. They slander. They're God-haters. They're insolent. They're arrogant. They're boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Listen to this. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, listen to this sentence, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. It sums up chapter one in Romans this way. Man exchanges the truth of God for a lie. He begins to worship himself over worshiping God. His lusts become the thing that he pursues, not God's love. When that happens, God allows people to run their course in life and to do whatever they want to do. And it is not just listed as sexual problems, but a world full of all sorts of evils. And then it says this in conclusion, that the people who practice these things not only practice them themselves, but they then encourage the entire mankind to do these things. I want to ask you, do we live in a day and an age where the people around us encourage each other to do exactly what they want to do? Truth is truth whenever it's written. All right, so it doesn't take some genius to sit back and go, okay, Genesis 2, God creates it. Genesis 3, man's falls. Romans 1 puts together. Where's our hope in all of this? So I wrote in your notes, here's our hope in everything that I just said. You'll find this again throughout the Bible, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 9 and 11. Again, Paul is writing to a church. This is important. He's not writing this to the world at large. He's writing this to a group of believers. So contextually, this becomes very important. And this is what he writes. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived about this. Listen to what he lists. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen to this sentence. Look at me. If you don't hear anything else, hear this sentence. Look at what Paul writes. And such were some of you. He's writing to a church and he says such were, past tense, some of you who now sit in this church And listen to this last sentence right here. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's been done by the Spirit of our God. Here's his overarching theme when he talks about the fall of man. He does not say that if you struggle with homosexuality, you fall into this small category of being broken. He said, if you are mankind, you are broken. You struggle with sin, period. And he's quick then to not just write down one thing. He writes down numerous things that I think covers everybody in this room, that at some point we've all lied. At some point we've slandered. At some point we've gossiped. At some point we've hated. At some point we've messed up sexually. And such were 
Past tense, some of you, which then flies into the face of what's being said today, that if you are this way, you cannot change. And don't tell us because you actually condemn us by telling us to change. And here the Bible says such were, past tense, some of you. But you've been washed and you've been sanctified and redeemed. So that we don't claim that as my identity. That's who I was. It's not who I am. My identity now is not found in who I prefer sexually or whether or not I lie to you or whether or not I sin. My identity is found in Christ, who I used to be, but I am no longer. Now, here's the question. If you struggle with any of those issues, will you make it to heaven? Tell me quickly. Are you unsure? So everybody in this church should say yes. I'm going to say it one more time. If you struggle with any sin, will you make it to heaven? Yes. Give me somebody real in this room. How many of you sinned today? Everybody better raise their hand. Because you're lying at least right now. At the minimum, you're lying. And at the maximum, you're just completely deceived. You know, you're so good. And should probably be up here teaching everybody. But... Somehow I ended up with the mic. So let's, we all find ourselves in this place that we were. If you call on the name of Christ, you were. You were. But our identity is not in what we were. Our identity is in who we are. Who are you? Redeemed, washed, by the Spirit of God. Come to the end of the message, Pastor, what would you have us do with this thing? So I, I, I recognize, gosh, how many people will hear this and how many different people are going to be coming from different places in life? Some of you, all you've heard, it, it, the one thing, the one thing you wanted to hear in this message, that's what you heard. Some of you heard what I was trying to say that, gosh, it covers everything. Some of you completely unconvinced, you, you, you simply are defined by an issue and you really need to get before God and ask what's supposed to define you and whether or not you really want that thing to be what you stand before God and say this is who I am or whether you want to stand before him and say that's what I was but I was redeemed and I was washed and I was sanctified by your spirit We have different models for response. One of them is our crosses. I thought the way that this might conclude itself is that as we go to worship God and make him the center of what we want to believe, if nothing else, as a believer, ask him to be your definition of truth and then debate this with him. Settle that issue with him. But if you find yourself, guys, I'm struggling with this issue. You know what the cross is for? It's to settle the issue of the struggle. That your answer is not in your ability to resist it or to change it or to be able to like, I'm gonna, I'll never do this again. The cross should represent that Jesus did this. He took it upon himself and that we find, listen, any obedience from, for God has to come from a deep love to God. It's got to come from a deep place inside of our heart. God, I love you. And because of that, I want to be obedient. And then it's not a willpower thing. It's by your spirit work this in me. And maybe it'd be a great place for you to settle some issues.
So maybe you just need to focus and make God the center of your life right now, and that's what this time of worship will be at all of our campuses. But rather than make it about a thing, maybe it's an overarching issue. Maybe God would speak directly to you about something tonight that might help redefine how you see yourself or how you're living your life or what God wants for you. And Father, that's where we just want to put ourselves right now is to trust you and to ask God that you'd help us. Let's make this clear. Open our eyes to truth and to what you're trying to say. You are good. Father God, even if we wrestle with that issue, I just can't understand this or this is so important to me. I just don't know how. God, we open ourselves to you. We open ourselves to have you speak to us. We don't divine ourselves, God, by a sin we commit or a thing that we do or even a place, God, that we believe. We don't define ourselves by this world. We define ourselves by who we are in Christ. Speak clearly to all of us. And draw us into that truth right now. The only reason you give us truth is because truth makes free. God set us free. Make us whole. Make us one. We commit ourselves to you. And I pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you to go ahead and stand to your feet. All of our campuses, let's just focus this time on God. And should there be anything that you want to take to the cross, you're free to do that. If you just want to sit and worship him, you do that. If you want to take communion, you're always welcome to do that.